Sections 33 and 34 of 100% The Story of a Patriot by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 33. One of Duggan's poems had to do with a poor devil named Slim, who was a snow-eater, that is to say, a cocaine victim. This Slim wandered about the streets of New York in the wintertime without any shelter, and would get into an office building late in the afternoon, and hide in one of the lavatories to spend the night. If he lay down, he would be seen and thrown out, so his only chance was to sit up, but when he fell asleep he would fall off the seat. Therefore he carried a rope in his pocket, and would tie himself in a sitting position. Now what was the use of a story like that? Peter didn't want to hear about such people. He wanted to express his disgust, but he knew, of course, that he must hide it. He laughed as he exclaimed, "'Christ Almighty, Duggan, can't you give us something with a smile? You don't think it's the job of socialists to find a cure for the dope habit, do you? That's sure one thing that ain't caused by the profit system.' Duggan smiled his bitterest smile. "'If there's any misery in the world today that ain't kept alive by the profit system, I'd like to see it. Do you think dope sells itself? If there wasn't a profit in it, would it be sold to anyone but doctors?' Where did you get your socialism, anyhow? So Peter beat a hasty retreat. Oh, sure, I know all that. But here you're shut up in jail because you want to change things. Ain't you got a right to give yourself a rest while you're in? The poet looked at him as solemn as an owl. He shook his head. No, he said, just because we're fixed up nice and comfortable in jail, have we got the right to forget the misery of those outside? The others laughed, but Duggan did not mean to be funny at all. He rose slowly to his feet, and with his arms outstretched, in the manner of one offering himself as a sacrifice, he proclaimed, While there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there is a soul in jail, I am not free. He sat down and buried his face in his hands. The group of rough fellows sat in solemn silence. Presently Gus, the Swedish sailor, feeling perhaps that the rebuke to Peter had been too severe, spoke timidly. Comrade Gudge, he been in jail twice already. So the poet looked up again. He held out his hand to Peter. Sure, I know that, he said, clasping Peter in the grip of comradeship. And then he added, I'll tell you a story with a smile. Once upon a time, it appeared, Duggan had been working in a moving picture studio, where they needed tramps and outcasts, and all sorts of people for crowds. They had been making a preparedness picture, and wanted to show the agitators and troublemakers mobbing the palace of a banker. They got two hundred bums and hoboes, and took them in trucks to the palace of a real banker, and on the front lawn the director made a speech to the crowd, explaining his ideas. Now, he said, remember, the guy that owns this house is the guy that's got all the wealth that you fellows have produced. You are down and out, and you know that he's robbed you, so you hate him. You gather on his lawn, and you're going to mob his home. If you can get hold of him, you're going to tear him to bits for what he's done to you. So the director went on, until finally Duggan interrupted. Say, boss, you don't have to teach us. This is a real palace, and we're real bums. Apparently the others saw the smile in this story, for they chuckled for some time over it. But it only added to Peter's hatred of these reds. It made him realize more than ever that they were a bunch of sore heads. They were green and yellow with jealousy. Everybody that had succeeded in the world they hated, just because they had succeeded. Well, 
They would never succeed. They would go on forever with their grouching. But the mass of the workers in America had a normal attitude toward the big man, who could do things. They did not want to wreck his palace. They admired him for having it, and they followed his leadership gladly. It seemed as if Henderson, the lumberjack, had read Peter's thought. My God, he said, what a job it is to make the workers class conscious. He sat on the edge of his cot, with his broad shoulders bowed, and his heavy brows knit in thought over the problem of how to increase the world's discontent. He told of one camp where he had worked, so hard and dangerous was the toil that seven men had given up their lives in the course of one winter. The man who owned this tract, and was exploiting it, had gotten the land by the rankest kind of public frauds. There were filthy bunkhouses, vermin, rotten food, poor wages, and incessant abuse. And yet, in the springtime, here came the young son of his owner, on a honeymoon trip with his bride. And Jesus, said Henderson, if you could have seen those stiffs turn out and cheer to split their throats. They really meant it, you know. They just loved that pair of idle, good-for-nothing kids. Gus the sailor spoke up his broad, good-natured face wearing a grin which showed where three of his front teeth had been knocked out with a belaying pin. It was exactly the same with the seamen, he declared. They never saw the ship-owners, they didn't know even the names of the people who were getting the profit of their toil, but they had a crazy loyalty to their ship. Some old tanker would be sent out to sea on purpose to be sunk, so that the owners might get the insurance but the poor A.B.'s would love that old tub, so they would go down to the bottom with her, or perhaps they would save her, to the owner's great disgust. Thus, for hours on end, Peter had to sit listening to this ding-donging about the wrongs of the poor and the crimes of the rich. Here he had been sentenced for fifteen days and nights to listen to socialist wrangles. Every one of these fellows had a different idea of how he wanted the world to be run and every one had a different idea of how to bring about the change. Life was an endless struggle between the haves and the have-nots, and the question of how the have-nots were to turn out the haves was called tactics. When you talked about tactics, you used long technical terms which made your conversation unintelligible to a plain ordinary mortal. It seemed to Peter that every time he fell asleep it was to the music of proletariat and surplus value and unearned increment, possibilism and impossibilism, political action, direct action, mass action, and the perpetual circle of syndicalist-anarchist, anarchist-communist, communist-socialist, and socialist-syndicalist. Section 34 In companies such as this, Peter's education for the role of detective was completed by force, as it were. He listened to everything, and while he did not dare make any notes, he stored away treasures in his mind, and when he came out of the jail he was able to give McGivney a pretty complete picture of the various radical organizations in American City, and the attitude of each one toward the war. Peter found that McGivney's device had worked perfectly. Peter was now a martyr and a hero. His position as one of the left-wingers was definitely established and anyone who ventured to say a word against him would be indignantly rebuked. As a matter of fact, no one desired to say much. Pat McCormick, Peter's enemy, was out on an organizing trip among the oil workers. Duggan had apparently taken a fancy to Peter, and took him to meet some of his friends, who lived in an old, deserted warehouse, which happened to have skylights in the roof. This constituted each room a studio. 
and various radicals rented the rooms, and lived here a sort of picnic existence, which Peter learned was called Bohemian. They were young people, most of them, with one or two old fellows, derelicts. They wore flannel shirts and soft ties, or no ties at all, and their fingers were always smeared with paint. Their life requirements were simple. All they wanted was an unlimited quantity of canvas and paint, some cigarettes, and at long intervals a pickle or some sauerkraut and a bottle of beer. They would sit all day in front of an easel, painting the most inconceivable pictures, pink skies and green-faced women, and purple grass and fantastic splurges of color which they would call anything from the woman with a mustard pot to a nude coming downstairs. And there would be others, like Duggan, writing verses all day, pounding away on a typewriter, if they could manage to rent or borrow one. There were several who sang, and one who played the flute, and caused all the others to tear their hair. There was a boy, fresh from the country, who declared that he had run away from home, because the family sang hymns all day, Sunday, and never sang in tune. From people such as these you would hear the most revolutionary utterances, but Peter soon realized that it was mostly just talk with them. They would work off their frenzies with a few dashes of paint or some ferocious chords on the piano. The really dangerous ones were not here. They were hidden away in offices or dens of their own, where they were prompting strikes and labor agitations, and preparing incendiary literature to be circulated among the poor. You met such people in the socialist local and in the IWW headquarters and in numerous clubs and propaganda societies which Peter investigated, and to which he was welcomed as a member. In the socialist local there was a fierce struggle going on over the war. What should be the attitude of the party? There was a group, a comparatively small group, which believed that the interests of socialism would best be served by helping the Allies to the overthrow of the Kaiser. There was another group, larger and still more determined, which believed that the war was a conspiracy of allied capitalism to rivet its power upon the world, and this group wanted the party to stake its existence upon a struggle against American participation. These two groups contested for the minds of the rank and file of the members, who seemed to be bewildered by the magnitude of the issue and the complexity of the arguments. Peter's orders were to go with the extreme anti-militarists, they were the ones whose confidence he wished to gain. Also, they were the troublemakers of the movement, and McGivney's instructions were to make all the trouble possible. Over at the IWW headquarters was another group whose members were debating their attitude to the war. Should they call strikes and try to cripple the leading industries of the country? Or should they go quietly on with their organization work, certain that in the end the workers would sicken of the military adventure into which they were being ensnared? Some of these wobblies were Socialist Party members also, and were active in both gatherings. Two of them, Henderson the Lumberjack, and Gus Lindstrom the Sailor, had been in jail with Peter, and had been among his intimates ever since. Also, Peter met the pacifists, the People's Council, as they called themselves. Many of these were religious people, two or three clergymen, and Donald Gordon the Quaker, and a varied assortment of women, sentimental young girls who shrunk from the thought of bloodshed, and mothers with tear-stained cheeks who did not want their darlings to be drafted. Peter saw right away that these mothers had no conscientious objections. Each mother was thinking about her own son and about nothing else. Peter was irritated at this, and took it for his special job to see that those mothers' darlings did their duty. 
He attended a gathering of pacifists in the home of a schoolteacher. They made heartbreaking speeches, and finally little Ada Ruth, the poetess, got up and wanted to know was it all to end in talk, or would they organize and prepare to take some action against the draft? Would they not at least go out on the street, get up a parade with banners of protest, and go to jail as Comrade Peter Gudge had so nobly done? Comrade Peter was called on for a few words. Comrade Peter explained that he was no speaker. After all, actions spoke louder than words, and he had tried to show what he believed. The others were made ashamed by this, and decided for a bold stand at once. Ada Ruth became president, and Donald Gordon secretary of the Anti-Conscription League, a list of whose charter members was turned over to McGivney the same evening. End of sections 33 and 34